Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tech Specs Podcast. This is episode one, the inaugural episode of the show. Tech Specs is a new podcast about consumer technology, which will hopefully be covering a broad array of topics in the future. I'm your host, Daniel Maddy, and today I'm joined by Brandon Chester, former mobile editor at Onentech. How's it going, Brandon? It's going good, Dan. How was the Canada today? It's pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, not much to report here. How about where you are? It is no longer a rainy disaster uh, in the Bay Area like it was yesterday. That's so, good. So, yeah, progress. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, Brandon is a mobile and display guru, a developer, also a good friend. And if I can be persuasive enough, uh, you will probably be hearing from Brandon many times in the future. Uh, that's my hope, right? Yeah, that's your hope. <laughs> uh, so I originally wanted us to talk about uh, the Galaxy S8 and some other things. Uh, and I think MWC is actually uh, in a few days. <laughs> so um, we might have to come back to that or play it by ear. Uh, it's, I know the GS8 is only going to be a tease. Uh, there will be uh, the LG G6 and some other things. Uh, but we might have to talk about that at another point. Um, so anyway, I think it's probably best to focus on the future stuff. Brandon, uh, do you think that Linus is the type of person who cares that the world's most po- popular OS is abandoning his work? No. Um, I think... Uh... Linus's response would be to, as usual, not care whatsoever. Uh, but I probably, I don't know, he probably already knows. Uh, but it's interesting to think about. Um, so unfortunately, I'm probably going to have to dominate the discussion uh, a lot today. Um, I do have a lot of notes that I want to go through, uh, because this is a fairly huge topic to cover. The TLDR is Google's going to be swapping kernels. It needs a stable ABI, which is an application binary interface for drivers. And that's the long and short of it. So before getting into it, I guess there's been some interesting things that have happened. There were a surprising number of people who came out of the woodwork after the, the first Fuchsia article I wrote went up. And also a lot of mysterious characters. Um, <laughs> Not just Googlers, uh, even some people at Apple, other companies. Um, Apple has been well aware of this project, by the way. Um, other companies uh, are also familiar with what Google's working on with Fuchsia. Um, I, I did receive some helpful commentary about Google's work that I really appreciate. Um, and I don't think I actually told you this before, Brandon, but there's apparently a few engineers out there who knew both of us beforehand. Uh, that we never knew, uh, and and some of these, and some people reaching out were actually uh, Anantech fans as well. So that's that was always cool to hear. Yeah, that's cool. I um, it's it's always a surprise to hear that anyone really knows me actually, uh, in the industry. Yeah, it's uh, oh, you have a you've had a big audience. Uh, so I'd like to think that some people definitely, um, appreciate you know, your hardware reviews and whatnot. Uh, I'm a little bit uh, 
different, I guess, in my background. But uh, anyway, um, if anyone hasn't read the the two articles I wrote on Tisha, and I'm not really sure anyone listening would not have, but um, I basically wrote about how Google is beginning a technical transition. They're going to be gradually, uh, extremely gradually, replacing the Linux kernel-based uh, Android kernel, uh, and Chrome OS, I guess, as well, uh, with a new operating system called Fuchsia. Uh, and first of all, I just want to say that Fuchsia is really, really cool. This is an awesome project uh, that makes a ton of sense for Google. Um, and then after that, I kind of just want to say that um, everyone needs to calm down, way, way down. Um, this is one of those things where 10 people can see the same thing and all interpret it differently. If you have deep reservations about you know, what I wrote in my first piece, I would encourage you to go back uh, and replace the word Andromeda with Fuchsia every single time. And, and then tell me if it's still as disagreeable to you. Um, and what I want to stress to death is that the Android, Android the API is not the same thing as Android the OS. And I have never said that the Android API or the frameworks are going away anytime remotely soon. Uh, so I never would have thought this article would be so controversial. There's no news in it. People were writing about Android abandoning Linux last year. I expected uh, Google's direction to be controversial, but I, I was mostly just quoting open source. So, you know, there's quite a lot in, in open source that's all being developed in the open. So it's kind of hard to draw certain conclusions. And, you know, I know that for articles on the internet, I'll, people often don't read past the first sentence or paragraph, and I get that. That's just how internet writing goes. You and I have both gone through this many, many times before. Yeah, it's uh, basically the first uh, first sentence or something, then the last one, and that's your article. Yeah, I've, I've written a lot of press releases where even the headline is not a given. <laughs> so uh, there's there's a lot to it, and it, you know it's it's on you to hold people's attention and get to the point and be clear. Um, but anyway, I, I did try to give as many caveats as possible about me not being a programmer, not being a kernel engineering expert. Uh, I probably have a few things wrong there. And if, you know, if anybody could please send me any technical corrections. Um, unfortunately, I got a little bit in that regard, uh, unfortunately. Um, and, and you know, the other thing which is obvious is that, you know, yes, uh, Hiroshi Lockheimer has publicly denied that Android and Chrome OS will merge. Uh, for anyone not familiar, Hiroshi is the SVP in charge of Android, Chrome OS, and the Play Store. Uh, I've worked with the Android team several times in the past, so I actually got to have a meeting with him one time, and he's an extremely nice guy. He, everybody loves him, uh, and he's just doing his job. He has to keep partners calm. He has to manage PR for Google's consumer platforms. So, yeah, he said that Google's not merging Android and Chrome OS, and that it wouldn't make any sense to do so. Open and shut case, right? Or maybe you just merge those two APIs, 
into a new operating system. And then all your existing Android apps will continue to work. But it's not running on Linux anymore. So you can sell that message. You could just say, this is a new operating system. It's not you know, replacing anything because all your stuff is still here. All your apps are still here. Uh, I think marketing can easily find a way of selling that. And to be clear, the, the Android kernel is not pure Linux by any stretch of the imagination. It was a Linux fork from day one. Um, some things do get, get merged back into the mainline Linux. Uh, and Android's version of Linux is always some number of releases back from the current Linux version. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, it, it what finally dawned on me is that a lot of people are confused or get confused about what an operating system is and what the word Android can mean. So maybe, Brandon, do you want to like explain operating systems a bit? Sure. I mean, <laughs> that's, a, that's quite a question, explain Sorry. what an operating <laughs> system is. But, uh, you know, it, does, it actually does seem like uh, a lot of people, ever since you posted that article, have tried to explain it and uh, not done so well. So maybe I'll have better luck than them. But when I think of an operating system, it's really just uh, pretty much the kernel, you know, which manages uh, your your memory subsystem and uh, provides all the, the really system APIs to, to get things done, working with I.O. and such. And then I guess you would include your, you couldn't, you could consider your developer facing API to be part of that as well. So, you know, if you were thinking about uh, Android, you have the kernel that runs underneath and then android has a set of apis that allow you to develop software that runs on the device and that's that's all about that's all that an os really is like as far as i'm concerned right it's just something that handles the the core tasks that require that are required for a device to function so you know like if you're if you're swapping the kernel right then you're basically not the same os anymore is what you could say yeah. And, and the distinction is just, you know, there's the API and the frameworks, which sit on top of the kernel. But, you know, the Android API is not the same thing as Android the OS. Uh, it all comes together, but um, it's like, you know, you have GNU Linux, uh, you have Android Linux, you have Darwin XNU. Uh, those are all operating systems, but they have both names attached to it. Um, you have the OS on top of the kernel. And then there's the consumer picture of the OS, which is like all of the above. Um, but that includes the visual stuff, the frameworks, et cetera, the API. Um, and then, you know, an operating system is inherently just a bunch of programs. Um, so I think it's, it's tricky, I think, for the average person to kind of get a sense of, of what an OS is and, you know, there's a ton that's going on. Uh, there's a lot of different code that's interacting together. Anyway, I think um, for future, the thing is, it, it can and probably will look exactly like Android today, you know, either on a phone or a tablet, uh, even a PC or, or a two-in-one form factor or whatever. Um, maybe on the on a PC, uh, the overall UI looks a lot like Chrome OS. You have a, a GUI that's designed around mouse and keyboard. Uh, but again, all the Android apps are still there. 
looks like Android, functions like Android, the API is the same. Um, and you could call that PCOS Andromeda uh, while calling the OS for phones and tablets Fuchsia. You could, you can continue to call all of it Android. Uh, we have no idea what the like marketing names will be. Uh, you know, and it really doesn't much matter. Um, but the underlying OS will be Fuchsia, and Magenta is the kernel. Um, I also said, you know, specifically in the article that Fuchsia might only launch on PCs, um, like laptops to begin with. Um, I don't really know. Um, for all we know, it might take several more years to launch on phones and tablets. Uh, I do think there's a good chance um, it'll launch this year. I think there's a chance that both Andromeda and Fuchsia launch this year. And I know someone that we both know who thinks that Pixel 2 will use Fuchsia, uh, which I think would make a ton of sense. Uh, but I'm certainly not making any promises about timing or this or that coming out. And you know, internally in Google, they may not know when things will ship. So timing is impossible to, to guess. There's no point. Um, but I think, yeah, obviously, you know, Andromeda will be based on Android, but it, the Android API, not the full Android OS with, you know, the Linux-based kernel. It has Maybe, to be um, just to interject, it might be good to say exactly what you mean when you talk about the Android API part, opposed to this, the Android kernel. So you're talking about the more developer-facing API for the system, right? Yeah, so API meaning what developers actually program to. So that includes the runtime, which is ART, uh, the Android runtime, a uh, very creative name. Um, and then all the frameworks around that. So all the, you know, uh, list view, uh, all the different UI components, um, animation, all the the, the SDK and the animation, NDK. Huh? NDK maybe, maybe you'd probably be better person to explain this stuff. <laughs> um. Well, I'm just, what I'm curious is, based on what you've seen, do you, th and obviously, of course, there's a degree of speculation with all of this, but do you think Android will be the only API is really the question, right? Because perhaps, obviously, Google wants to move away from Android, the operating system, but I think there are a lot of parts of the Android API that they would love to, uh, to make changes to as well. Um, so... It's not as though developers will have exactly the same experience in every respect, I would think. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's very unclear what will ship when, but you know, if you look at all the the open source repository, which is uh, Fuchsia Source, uh, or it's, it's Fuchsia.googlesource.com, I think, and you know, there's a ton of frameworks there. There's media frameworks. There's um, apps for you know, UI, there's the runtime for Mojo, which is taken from the Chromium team. Uh, there's all this language support, all these language bindings are built into Mojo. There's the run the runtime itself, which is modular. And a lot of this is from, again, from Chromium. It's using Dart uh, for the UI language and that framework around that for the series of widgets is Flutter, which is an existing uh, widget framework from Google, which um, already, they've been working on for at least a couple of years, if not longer. Um, that you can have apps that run on Android and iOS already, uh, that they're still working on. I know they're working on 
you know, very hard on that, uh, as well as the Dark team. Um, so it's not clear how much of that is ready. I think uh, Dart, Dart is still being worked on. Uh, I think a lot of Flutter is probably not ready just now. Um, so fundamentally, you know, you can continue to use, you know, all the existing Android API and frameworks. You can keep, you know, drawing the same kind of apps, uh, accessing the same, you know, sensors and, and hardware and everything like that. Um, and there's, there's no option here. Like they have to have Android app support. Um, otherwise you have nothing. Um, yeah. and nobody's going to buy a product that doesn't have Android app support because the mobile war is over Android and iOS one, uh, and you need apps. So I guess the distinction that can be made is that Android is an API available on the system as it is now, but it may not be the only API available for developers to use. Yeah, exactly. And I think long-term, you know, the underlying OS will be Fuchsia, but in the long-term, you're going to want to improve the platform, gradually replace a lot of Android API, um, that sounds like a great idea to me. There's, I think if you listen to pretty much anyone on the Android team, they would probably agree with a lot of this, um, because they're, you know, all the time publicly, you know, they talk about their technical debt and how they can't do certain things because of the way the platform was launched, early decisions they made, uh, to go to market. I hate that term, but you know, when they first went to the carriers back in, you know, 2007, 2006, 2008. Um, you know, having to support Java, um, ME, uh, I think part of that for the carriers. And, you know, so they had to go with Java. I think there's a lot of people, uh, people working on Fuchsia who regret Java. Um, I regret Java. And I, I'm sure there's probably a lot of listeners that like Java and are happy with, you know, Android API development as it is. Um, but I think that, you know, the goal with Dart uh, now and with a lot of things they're working on is to, to make things better. And I think that's probably a lot of the thinking um, to improve the platform overall. And it's going to be extremely gradual. You, you don't just throw away all the code, all the stuff that already exists, all the frameworks. That, that's not how it works. It's, it, you know, Apple is going through a similar transition right now with Swift. Uh, they have to get the language to be, um, they need ABI stability with Swift um, for the, the core library in order to actually begin to rewrite all their frameworks using Swift. Uh, and they can't even do that until a year from now. Um, and eventually they're just going to start this very, very long process of gradually phasing out um, all the Objective-C, you know, Cocoa libraries and frameworks uh, and replacing them with something better. But, you know, that's like a 10-year effort. Um, and you know, there's still code in you know Mac OS is from the '80s, I think. So that's you know. Yeah, I mean, AppKit, is... AppKit itself is dates back to to Next, right? So yeah, yeah, these things never go away. Yeah, exactly. Uh, oh, and and before I forget, I have no idea if Chrome OS is quote unquote dead. They're still pushing out. Chrome OS products. Uh, they're, I mean, they've been marketing them heavily, I guess, with uh, a few units and whatnot. Uh, there's some, I think there's like rock chip systems, which is pretty low end. Um, there are even signs of Chrome OS devices 
that will be pure tablets. Um, and, and Chromebooks are obviously huge in education for a reason. You can't screw them up, and there's pretty much nothing to manage. So maybe Google keeps selling plain old Chrome OS products as well. Uh, there's no reason that existing code base can't just live on uh, on its own. Um, yeah, so I mean, it, uh, Samsung, they, the Samsung just launched their uh, their Chromebook as well, and that's seems to me a lot like kind of a spiritual successor to the Pixel because it's pretty high-end. So I wouldn't imagine that thing gets end-of-life, you know, right off the bat. Yeah, I think that's what Hiroshi and, I guess, uh, Dave Burke and others are kind of trying to reassure people that, hey, we're not going to just abandon these overnight. There's, there's no way they do that. There's no reason to do that. Uh, so anyway, let, let's talk about Magenta. Um, I think uh, I should read the literal readme from for the Magenta kernel that's in Google's public repository. Seems like no one else did. <laughs> I, I find this very straightforward, but <clears throat> it says, Magenta targets modern phones and modern personal computers with fast processors, non-trivial amounts of RAM with arbitrary peripherals doing open-end computation. Okay, targets, phones, PCs. I don't know. Pretty sounds pretty straightforward. So, what is this future thing about? It's a hobby. Well, it, it's just a hobby, obviously. They're not yeah, going to do so, with this. Yeah. So, so basically, if you also look at the repository for uh, Fuchsia, it says right at the top, like proudly displayed, pink plus purple equals equals Fuchsia. So. Uh, for anyone who's a programmer, you know what that means. Um, pink, you know, there are public uh, statements by people working on Fuchsia. Pink is a reference to Taligent, uh, which is an operating system from Apple, which I didn't realize this, but it dates back to 1988. Um, it was an effort to, you know, replace the classic Mac OS. Um, basically, Apple struggled forever. I think for the better part of a decade, trying to transition, they needed um, preemptive multitasking, they needed memory protection, because uh, you could do horribly ridiculous things in classic Mac OS. Uh, so they didn't have a modern OS, and they needed to update it. I'm not you know, a historian about Mac OS, I, I don't know much of the details, but basically Taligent was an effort that failed, but it was one of their first efforts to transition their OS, and the idea was you could continue running classic Mac OS apps, and it would look just like classic Mac OS, but they would replace the kernel uh, with a new microkernel. Um, so that, that's all about all I know for Talbot, but you know, that's an interesting reference. Um, there's also purple, which refers to Project Purple, uh, which was the code name for the original iPhone project. Uh, so pink plus purple equals fuchsia. So I think that's a deliberate statement. Uh, these are not just some random engineers working on it. These are top OS people with a ton of experience. Uh, I don't want to name any names because I personally hate that. I think you should try to respect people's privacy. But still, none of this is really a secret. Um, there are people from the original iPhone team, the original Android team, VOS, Dangerous Hip Top OS, uh, WebOS, QNX, etc. Um, people that were not at Google but got recruited or even came back to Google 
work on Fuchsia. Um, so I would think it has to be a pretty special project, um, you would think. Uh, there's also over 100 con contributors to Fuchsia. You know, uh, if you look at there's Fuchsia, Flutter, Dart, uh, you know, as best we can tell at the moment. So like, like you said, like, it's, it's safe to say this is not, you know, a little hobby research project. So yeah, pink plus purple, uh, Taligent, original iPhone. And to me, this, this reads like a mission statement or maybe more like uh, the project purpose or something like that. Um, you know, these are pretty clear allusions. Um, and I understand why else it would be prominently displayed in the repository. This is all in the open, but not hiding anything. Most of these repositories are documented. You know, I in my article I was just quoting the documentation. Um, so anyway, I was hoping the first article um, would generate some discussion about the actual Mojo API and the relative merits and downside of what, what Google's working on. Uh, I think that's kind of the interesting part. Um, and you know, I don't think Flutter is quite ready yet for Fuchsia, so that may come a bit later. Uh, I don't know how far along that or or Mojo is, but there's quite a lot of there's quite a few com commits that are in there, and there's quite a lot that's been done. Um, they've been working on it for at least a year. Um, so again, Mojo's coming with the Chromium team. Uh, Andromeda, which we don't know 100% what it is for sure. Um, but that could be almost entirely Android-based uh, at first. And so you have the Android team, which is hundreds of engineers. You have future engineers. You have uh, all these various teams uh, all working on various pieces, and they all have to come together to some extent. Um, and you know, some things will come before other things. Um, and when I, when I wrote these articles, I was hoping that some people with you know, deeper technical understanding of kernels and Linux might be able to provide some clarification, corrections on top of what I've written. Um, I only get, ended up getting a tiny bit of that, unfortunately. But I don't know, Brandon. I mean, I just I thought a lot of people who follow Android just kind of knew by now about Fuchsia. I mean, we, you and I have been talking about it for, for months. You know, this was uh, known like a like there were signs of this like a year ago. So I don't yeah I don't know like is this news like is this, I guess it is news to people, but. I didn't expect it to, when you when you sent me the article uh, before you posted it. I wasn't expecting uh, a bunch of controversy over what to me didn't seem like news, more like a, a good overview of like what people had already known was going on and what was publicly documented is going on on a public GitHub repository that anyone can go look at. So yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why it was so controversial. I mean, we were arguing about Dart in like <laughs> December, I, I think maybe even before Dart. that. Yes. And well, there I didn't are, believe uh, you then. Oh, okay, good. That's good to know now. I'm glad it's finally coming out. Um, I think well, there were a ton of articles. I think it goes back to last August, I think, about Google using its own kernel for Fuchsia instead of Linux. Uh, this is not an opinion. The OS is not Linux. Um, 
you know, I went back as a sanity check and reread some of those articles. They said almost the exact same things as like what I wrote. So yeah, what's new here? Um, you know, the amount of public commits has grown a ton. Um, so that's why I kind of just was checking on it every once in a while. And, um, you know, starting a blog, I figured it'd just be an interesting thing to write about uh, for a first piece. Um, but yeah, most of the information dates back to last fall. Um, I mostly just wanted to talk about Tisha's API, uh, which is very interesting. Uh, and maybe we can do that one day. Um, in my initial draft, uh, I had actually originally written that it kind of looked like Android was being merged into Chrome OS rather than the other way around. And what I was thinking at the time was, well, Mojo, the API, Modular, the runtime, you know, these things come from the Chromium team. Mojo, native client, etc. These were used in Chrome OS and they allowed um, for things like Arc, which enabled Android apps in Chrome OS. Um, so given all that, and there was a story from the Wall Street Journal, which kind of surprisingly is all the way back in you know, 2015, uh, they're claiming that Google was going to merge Chrome OS into Android, uh, which evolved into uh, the rumors about Andromeda uh, last year. Um, so, you know, I thought that all made sense. And there's the name Andromeda, which, you know, visually looks like it's made up of the words Android plus Chrome plus maybe Dart. Uh, so I, I don't think that's a coincidence. I mean, you never know, but I, it seems pretty credible to me. Um, but anyway, after thinking through all that, I, uh, I settled on saying that Android and Chrome OS, meaning their APIs, might be merged on top of Fuchsia. And I thought that was probably more technically correct. Um, and all the open source commits really kind of paint that picture um, altogether. So anyway, I think all these things are linked together to varying degrees. Um, do you want to um, maybe <laughs> talk about kernels or like monolithic versus microkernel? Um, maybe we could talk about Dart and all the API stuff and Android Dev another time. Sure. I mean, uh, well, it's like you said, it's a, or it appears to be a, a microkernel system, right? And uh, that's kind of interesting because for people who don't really know, and, uh, you know, I'm not an operating systems developer here, so forgive me and uh, feel free to send any corrections. But the the main difference with a microkernel and, uh, and most systems, which are a typical monolithic kernel like Linux is, uh, which is what Android is based on, um, I think the Windows kernel is considered monolithic too, um, is that you have apps and they basically communicate with the kernel via a set of system calls uh, that they use to get various things done, interact with the file system, do I.O. Um, and all your things like your memory management, like virtual memory, scheduling, your device drivers, your dispatch, um, and uh, inner process communication is all handled by the kernel or in the kernel. Whereas in a microkernel, you kind of try to separate everything and make it more scalable and modular such that you have IPC, like inner process communication, 
between apps, uh, you have your device drivers and your file server and all that outside of the kernel. And the kernel is just kind of bare minimum, basic IPC, uh, and it handles, I guess, virtual memory and, and scheduling. And uh, that's about it, really. And then there are some varying degrees of what you'd consider a microkernel, a monolithic kernel, a hybrid kernel, etc. And so I guess Google is going the microkernel route, which is interesting to me because I, I remember when you told me I was kind of uh, interested in it because there aren't many examples of uh, microkernel-based systems that are that successful. Like the the big example, I guess, is Mach, which ended up performing terribly because of uh, IPC overhead and, and issues with how uh, it needed to manage memory to do that. Um, and, th and that was Apple. Yeah, and well, I mean that was I mean that was uh, Carnegie Mellon, and then Apple kind of took it, and or I guess Next took it, and yeah. added a bunch of BSD st stuff, right. uh, which made it like a, a hybrid kernel because BSD uh, the BSD stuff was more monolithic in its nature. So they basically took things, they put things like drivers and uh, and uh, the file system code uh, and integrated it in the kernel rather than having it in user space, and that kind of made performance more acceptable than mock, which was generally not considered to perform well. And so I guess I had had the opinion that there wasn't an example of a system where a microkernel had been pulled off well. But the truth is really that mock, a lot of the issues with mock come down to the fact that it just was implemented in a very poor manner. Um, and there's some overhead from IPC calls, but there's also some issues with how Mach handled uh, the the memory that uh, made it less than off. It made it look worse than it could have been. It just wasn't a great implementation. And there are other examples of microkernels that actually have been deployed and worked well, like uh, QNX actually that you mentioned earlier is a microkernel system. And so I'm not sure exactly what Google. I can't speak to what Google's rationale for going this route would be, but they have a lot of operating system people there that are much smarter than I am. And I would bet that they have a good reason for migrating away from Linux, which is a very monolithic system, to a kernel that handles fewer tasks and kind of moves more things into to user space. So yeah, I mean, I, you know, I really don't know what direction they're going there or why, but, uh, I'm sure that as the repo gets more commits and uh, they document more things, it might become clearer as to why they, they went this route. That was a really good overview. Uh, yeah, good job. Uh, I think, well, for one, you know, you can look at Mojo and uh, again, taking from Chromium, there's a series of all these IPC calls where you can pass uh, data um, through uh, there's message pipes, there's data pipes, which are bigger data, which are unidirectional but not bidirectional. Uh, there was uh, shared buffers as well for memory. Um, so you can have, yeah, this is all in user space. Um, and I think what you're leading to, so forgive me if I'm wrong, the trade-off, as far as I understand, between like a, a microkernel and monolithic is, you know, a microkernel is more scalable uh, but monolithic is more performant. Is that right? Yeah, 
at a high level because with a microkernel you end up having to pass messages pretty frequently where like there are a lot of there are a lot of cases where if you have a monolithic kernel and an application needs to do something it's a single system call that it does whereas with a microkernel there can be a interprocess communication and then there's some memory related overhead and there can be a CPU context switching overhead that that reduces performance um, but there are like I said there are examples of systems uh, like QNX which is a real-time OS uh, in many respects that can do it performantly so there are obviously uh, ways to build a system in that manner that do perform well yeah uh it's you know I think this is this goes over uh, certainly my head in terms of the, the technical nitty gritty about operating systems, um, and you know I'm sure people who actually have worked on OSs and kernels and whatnot uh, maybe they're rolling their eyes at us I don't know but um, there's a lot of interesting details there and so why Google is doing things a certain way, um, but the other you know the the real question here is. Why are they doing a new kernel? Why are they doing a new OS? And I don't really want to get into the whole uh, BSPs and drivers and Linux part of Android. Uh, but basically, Linux doesn't have a driver ABI. Uh, Google controls the OS user land, but the device vendors are the ones who ship the updates uh, for devices, Android devices. SOC vendors are the ones that write the drivers. So what Google's trying to do is they need what they need is a stable ABI for drivers. Uh, I don't know if you want to talk about you know binary blobs and and a lot of that. I mean, so I guess what you could say is that uh, Linux itself as a kernel is not entirely open source because there are a lot of parts of it that have binary blobs which are basically here's a, a compiled binary of some code that you don't have the source for you don't know what it is really and most of it is basically driver related so uh, a vendor provides this uh it gets put into the kernel to support some some hardware device or something of that sort and so on android all the vendors provide these um b these binary blobs that are closed source that uh that exists for driver support and so it's uh not it's it's kind of out of the control of the handset makers and of google in that sense yeah um and it could be a very depressing situation all around uh for many many devices um especially for you know low cost uh devices low cost socs uh systems on a chip for anyone not familiar uh, so, you know, a MediaTek or Rock chip, system on a chip, which is, you know, extremely cheap. The business model is optimized to be as low cost as possible, uh, which, you know, does democratize, you know, smartphones. Uh, you know, we have phones, uh, I think there's Android phones that cost like uh, $70 US in certain parts of the world, like East Asia, or, um, which is amazing. But, you know, what it boils down to is, Google wants ABI stability. There has to be a sane path that actually enables hardware vendors to write updates at reasonable cost. You know, Media Tech never updates anything. Um, 
you know, it doesn't make sense to, I mean, from its perspective. So. Yeah, I mean, it's just not cost effective when your SOC costs $3, right? Um, yeah. To to spend, put the effort into writing uh, updates and doing board support and stuff. And even with uh, other devices, Google and other vendors have run into this. Like, I don't want to... I don't want to call anyone out uh, in the SOC space, but there are certain companies that have a very bad track record of providing BSP support, even though their SOCs are not even that cheap. And Google has had to deal with this in a few of their devices, whether because the vendor doesn't provide updates or the vendor is called Texas Instruments and they went left the SOC space entirely. So it's just, it's just an issue for being able, it's just another part of the process that makes it harder to ship updates. (laughs) Yeah. You're, you know, Google and device vendors, they do their own code. They do their own bring up, whatever, but they're dependent on the silicon vendors and for drivers. So what can they do? I mean, you just have a series of mutual dependencies, all sorts of different engineers at different companies working together to get something to ship. So anyway, uh, we could probably talk about that for days, but to to wrap this, this discussion up about Fuchsia, uh, what I want to say is I think some of the primary motivations are the following. One, replace the Linux kernel, which has caused Google a lot of pain over the years. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that didn't come with an enormous uh, head start, um, ton of great code, uh, really um, uh, really battle-tested code, really, you know, great contributions from the open source community, et cetera. But um, this, you know, having your own kernel uh, can and probably will help solve Android's update problem. Uh, you never want to be too confident about that. Um, and the carriers are still going to exist. And, you know, even Windows Phone, uh, carriers did delay updates or even cause more problems, I guess, in terms of software updates rolling out. Uh, number two, I would say over the very long term, you want to complement slash substitute slash replace the Android API and the frameworks with something better uh, without the technical debt that Android's had since the very beginning. Um, and I know, yeah, Android engineers publicly complain constantly about the technical debt that they just have to deal with. You know, with something like uh, animations, uh, they have to provide backwards compatibility um, through backend pad and other libraries that uh, is very difficult to do on an older version of Android. Um, that's just, you know, one example off the top of my head. Um, uh, third point, you know, maybe you want to add real native apps to Chrome OS. Uh, or at least have a more full-featured and competitive consumer PC uh, slash laptop platform. Uh, and I think that'd be pretty cool. And lastly, uh, for, I would say, you want to have a credible IoT platform uh, that has Silicon vendors actually providing updates. So it's, you know, I, so IoT is hopefully not just insecure nightmare, Um which it always has been, uh, and honestly, is you know it's constantly getting worse as well. So hopefully, uh, this situation can 
Fuchsia can really help out uh, in that regard. Um, there's all sorts of other topics that, I mean, this is a, a massive area. Uh, so, you know, people might want to talk about the Oracle litigation, uh, licensing or not licensing Java or copyright. Um, I, I honestly have no clue about that stuff. I'm not, you know, a legal technical expert or anything like that. Uh, uh, in my articles, I also didn't want to get into the OS licensing at all uh, because I'm not interested in provoking the usual flame wars, uh, which happened anyway, of course. Uh, it was all the first comments was definitely just about that. Um, but I think, so I, I wrote down, I think uh, for a few shows they're using uh, revised BSD, MIT, Apache uh, 2 licenses. Uh, I'm not I'm not familiar with a lot of the nitty gritty around those differences, but uh, from consumers' point of view, um, and I think which is you know maybe the most interesting question: When does Fuchsia ship? You know when when do we say this on real devices? And I don't know. Uh, I personally suspect that it might be this year that we might see both Fuchsia and Andromeda. Uh, at least in some initial form. Um, I think there's certain reasons to think that, which um, are not things I share publicly. Um, but you know that's that is a bit speculative. Um, I think it would make a lot of sense. I, you know, something like the Google's Pixel smartphone last year. Uh, it was pure Google, quote unquote, and they they made the phone, but uh, you know, people quickly found out, hey, actually, this is HTC that did the bring up. And, um, you know, I guess that's coming from their device tree or uh, yeah, I don't know how the link works, but um, HTC certainly had a very heavy hand in helping to develop that phone and to reuse their existing code base for their other devices, um, you know, HTC 10 and otherwise. Uh, and I know Google had more of a hand in the Pixel than they did in Nexus devices. They did do more. I'm not really clear about what, what things they did. I know they were more uh, dictating, I guess, on the hardware side. Uh, but in terms of like doing a lot of the, the bring up uh, on the hardware, HTC still handled a lot of that. Uh, and then, you know, they're, they're Silicon partners as well. So I think it would make sense if, you know, Sundar has a mission that he wants to do hardware. They started that um, yet again for like maybe the fourth or fifth time, but in a bigger way last year. And um, I think they're going to continue to evolve that and how much they do. And they have more more runway, more time on, on Pixel 2 and other devices. Uh, so, you know, naturally you expect them to do more of the software, more of the hardware. Um, do you think so my Chromebook Pixel should. will get updated? Say that again? Sorry. Do you think my Chromebook Pixel is going to get updated? Uh, is it the first or second one? It's the second one. It's the good one. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, that's just that's that's my question about the whole thing. Is not when it ships. It's uh, you know, hopefully the Pixel phone, Pixel Pixel XL. But you know, you got the Pixel C and then you got the Chromebooks. It's like, do do we get this split between some devices that get stuck on Android? They're maybe a bit too old or stuck on Chrome OS, and some that get updated. That's a whole other. Uh, Whole other situation. So your Chromebook, that was 2015, I think, right? 
Yeah, 2015. Yeah, I don't think that that's not getting up to it. Oh, <laughs> I'd be no. shocked. Uh, I think Pixel C maybe is more of the, the real question. Yeah. I, again, I don't know if you can actually update the kernel in place like that. So here's something that I think is obvious. If they ship Future this year, so Pixel 2 whatnot, they're not going to leave last year's Pixel phone to die. They're not going to say, oh, no updates. Like That's <laughs> definitely not happening. So either Sorry, it guys. gets just Android uh, O, whatever that will be called, and it's just you know standard new Android, or they can replace the kernel and uh, put Android O on top of it, of course. Um, and I'm not really sure how that works, so I'm not going to pretend to assume the technical details of what they're working on. Uh, I, you know, I think it'd be great if they could do it, but you know, we've certainly seen with Windows Phone, Windows Phone 8, they swapped uh, kernels and that broke backwards compatibility. So uh, that was, you know, basically impossible to to provide existing devices a way forward there. Yeah, my uh, my Samsung Focus did not get Windows Phone 8. I was very upset at the time, but uh, yeah. Microsoft unfortunately made, you know, several mistakes about kernel and OS strategy um, well, be- well before that point. And, you know, that's a whole other rabbit hole, I guess, to go down. To. But for, for Pixel and for other devices, these things are going to get updates. So I think, you know, Chrome OS will, will live on and get supported. So the, the Chromebook Pixel you have will still be updated, you know, I assume, uh, for whatever that that planned uh, support lifecycle is. Did I don't they think discontinue it? They did. Oh, wow. Sorry, I just, I didn't know they discontinued it, too. Oh, That's really? Sad. Yeah, they, I think uh, it's because that new Samsung thing is like the new successor, spiritual successor. Oh, well. Did they? Uh, you mean discontinue in terms of stop selling, or? Yeah, they don't sell the they don't sell the Chromebook Pixel anymore. Did they stop selling Pixel C? Uh, that you know what that is an interesting question. That I was an talked interesting about that. I talked about that in my review because I noted that the Google Pixel website does not list that particular product that we won't name anymore in fact it doesn't list tablets anywhere or the made by google website rather it's not there at all so uh yeah pixel c uh that thing never happened don't worry about it it doesn't need updates that was an interesting device which i think had a very interesting Interesting internal development (laughs) i think that they're definitely still i remember what i wanted to say which is they're definitely still doing builds um, on the Chromebook Pixel 2015 and the Pixel C, um, I, that doesn't necessarily mean anything will ship. I know a lot of people uh, on the internet will see that Google is doing bring up a, a new version of Android on a ne- an older Nexus device or something. And yeah, it doesn't you know, honestly, mean Google, <laughs> well, they they have to test, so they don't know necessarily if they can support something. They don't know if maybe the GPU vendor is going to lead them to try. Um, yeah, I mean, like, what do you think people happened? What do people think happened when Nexus Five? The yeah. phone is the performs fine. They have no driver support, <laughs> so it exactly. dies, um, and that's what happens. Yeah. 
which which again is very much what Google wants to solve here. So, um, you know, something like Windows, I think Windows XP to Windows 10 has been the same driver ABI. I think that's what, I think that's what Josh was telling me. It's, you know, it's been a a long time, so. Microsoft Um, is very good at that backward compatibility game. Nothing breaks. Right, exactly. Things will just work forever. And, you know, there's pros and cons. At some point, you have to make breaking changes. But, uh, yeah, there's basically, you want to balance, right? You want to have four or five years, at least, probably, at least, of, uh, you know, stable driver ABI. Um, Anyway, uh, so for Fuchsia Andromeda, you know, all these things, I'm happy to talk to anyone about this. You know, the internet is often not a very friendly or inclusive place. But, you know, it's important to just have mutual respect and just be relaxed. And reasonable people can disagree. That's perfectly okay. No one is going to die if you disagree about really boring operating system details. Uh, but, so, there's a lot more that we could talk about. Uh, I think this is enough for now on Fuchsia. Uh, I want to see how are we for time. 55 minutes. That's not, yeah. yeah, that's not as bad as I thought. Um, do you want to talk about uh, Galaxy S8 or uh, MWC, anything like that? I actually, I don't even know what the rumor is for the Galaxy S8. Like, I've kind of seen it, but I'm like, I don't know, I'm, I'm out of that game now. It's not going to have buttons though, right? So... No, probably, probably virtual buttons. I'm friggin' oh, but it's 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 longer, isn't it? Right? Yeah, it's so that's it's okay like then. Twenty one nine or something like that. I just don't want to give up my uh, vertical space because I was using uh, I was using my app on a on a phone with on screen buttons, and when you consider the view pager, the space the view pager takes, and then the action bar, and then the status bar, and the on screen buttons, you have like no space left to show anything. I'm like, what the hell? I don't know. Yeah, so it's interesting how they're going to do this. I think it's interesting how Apple's going to do it as well. But um, you so if you're playing a video, which is sixteen nine, do you just show black on the sides? Um, yeah, that's the that's the interesting question, right? Um, I thought about that, but then what if uh, if your phone has a white face that doesn't look good either, right? That that assumes yeah. you have a black phone. Um, yeah. So I feel like there's no good solution there. <laughs> um, th- I think there's, I think it'll make sense uh, when things, when we see what actually happens. It's a bit hard to wrap your head around, but. I think know, they're just going to keep showing the buttons, to be honest. Yeah. And then in Android as it is, the buttons like minimize, they go into like those little dots. The dots stay. When they become inactive. Um, so the other thing, you know, OLED is tricky. Um, you have a big problem with with video and like web content where you want to have a dark mode. Uh, the reason you do this, uh, for anyone listening, not not familiar with OLED, you you know you're not using any power when you have a black pixel. It's not emitting light. Um, so to to save energy to be more efficient, you want to have a dark background as much black as possible. Uh, so you have you know dark mode on a lot of these OLED devices. 
and that presents a lot of design problems because it's really hard to just make dark mode for all your UI frameworks. That's not something you can just turn around in a week. It's, it's a ton of work. It breaks everything, um, and you have to do it very carefully. Uh, and two, uh, it presents challenges for things like video and web content where things are often very bright and they don't really mix. And you can't just make all the video content dark. You can't make people's websites dark. You can't just automatically convert that. Um, so it's a massive technical challenge. I, you know, a lot of these things don't have clear answers. Um, so I think that's what I'm like really looking forward to see is what does Samsung do? Eventually, what does Apple do? Um, there's even uh, font considerations because uh, the way the eye works, your ir the iris uh, gets wider when it's looking at something dark. And if you keep fonts that are really thin, then you kind of get halation because of uh, it gets fuzzy on the edges, kind of like a camera when you make the aperture wider. So some apps will even kind of alter their, their font scheme and their kerning and stuff uh, depending on if it's white on black or black on white. So that's an interesting challenge from a usability perspective. That is interesting. Uh, I'm guessing Android doesn't do any uh, of its own compensation, right? So no, no, I don't. I don't know of many things that do. But like, even just I have a pretty heavy astigmatism, for example. And for me, like, people always tell mention how like dark mode's easier on their eyes, and I'm like, really, because there are a lot of people who have astigmatism, and it strains your eyes pretty badly. Mm. <laughs> so. Yeah, uh, it's an interesting challenge to to consider all these sort of UX things and accessibility and that sort of thing. Yeah, and you, there's also the actual firmware, like the actual software running on the display driver, or sorry, the display controller, uh, that there are, di there are significant differences between LCD and OLED. Uh, yep. So Samsung's been doing this forever. Uh, everybody else, not so much. Um, Apple's going to have to rewrite a lot of things and change a lot of their uh, display software. Yeah, even font um, rendering. They don't yeah. do any. I don't think they do anything for font rendering on the watch, and you can tell that it's kind of weird. Um, like it just like just even with the the pseudo RGB, it doesn't look the same as an LCD because they're mm -hmm. arranged in like a cube or not like a cube, like a, a weird square sort of thing, and you can see on the edges. Yeah you get chromatic aliasing that you don't get on an LCD. So that's going to be a challenge as well. And to be honest, I think most vendors are just going to do nothing. <laughs> yeah, I, that's the reality, of course. But it'll be interesting to see if Apple uh, changes anything. Um, yeah, I'm th they certainly did some things for the watch. Um, there's probably always more that can be done. You know, you don't, you can't just fix everything or update everything overnight. Sometimes it takes years. Um, but anyway, I think the other thing you may want to you know, talk about is uh, for GS8, so it's rumored to be S-Stripe, and it's also rumored to be um, have a, a new emitter material. Um, I forget which. Um, maybe not. Maybe the rumors don't even say, but uh, what, what are those kind of things uh, improve upon for OLED? So is there any rumor about the absolute resolution or did they just say they're moving to S-Stripe in general? Same resolution. Same 14, resolution? 14.4. Well, like, well, wider though, right? You're supposedly right. wider. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, sorry. Similar pixel same, density. Same. So right. 
it's actually not as big of an issue on Samsung devices because they've just pushed with Pentile. They just pushed resolution so high that it didn't matter too much. But with Pentile, you still have issues with like even just font rendering. You're you're ba- it's basically based on the notion that you're okay not rendering things correctly. Um, <laughs> like that's really how it works, right? You're doing subpixel rendering, and then you do uh, image reconstruction, right, to deal with the fact that your your red and blue resolution is halved. And, uh, so I've, I had always predicted, well, I really don't think this is a reasonable solution. And I think we will eventually see RGB, especially with VR now using OLED, I will guarantee that we're going to see RGB because it's way too hard to fight Pentile's, uh, sort of screen door pattern with the types of pixel densities you need in VR. Um, it's just not worth trying to do, um, like and it's also just a waste of uh, GPU power because you still have to render uh, a given resolution and then you don't get the full visual benefit of it. So you end up processing uh, 1440p images and your screen looks about as good as a 1080p LCD. So your GPU has to work harder, use more power, performance is worse, etc. So moving to S-Stripe would be great. Um, it would also in my opinion, be reasonable to then drop back down to 1080p, but consumers won't like that from a marketing perspective, so they probably won't do it. Um, but yeah, you just get better uh, You get better text rendering, you get uh, lower pattern visibility because people are used to the sort of RGB pattern. You get full resolution for red and blue. Um, it'll be great uh, for usability, and uh, especially using phones and sort of a VR application, I think it will help there a lot as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, new Gear VR, um, or sorry, I guess I already have a new Gear VR for what was the Note Seven, um, <laughs> using USB-C. But it'll be, yeah, a big improvement for VR because you know, you can you can see the pentile. So for anyone not familiar, uh, pentile is referring to the subpixel arrangement. So the individual uh, pixel color components that make up individual pixels in display. And so there's different arrangements that you may have. And for OLED, you do this because there's a lot of challenges with the organic uh, deposition process and basically it's just extremely expensive to do to do this stuff well. And I mean, you, you can explain this a lot better probably, but um, you know, S-Stripe, what we're referring to is um, an arrange, a subpixel arrangement which is a rectangular square, basically, of red, green, and blue, where I believe, uh, is it the blue pixel that's taller? Yes, the so blue, or no, sorry, the green is about twice the size of the others. Right, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not, they're all, they're asymmetrical, though, like, they're all different sizes. The, uh, I forget exactly what it is, but the green is a vertical one. Then the blue is, I think, slightly larger than the red, or it's the other way around, but... Uh, yeah. Yeah, you have a larger green, but you have three of them per pixel, whereas a normal pentile layout ends up only having either a green-red or a green-blue pair per pixel. So you lose resolution um, for red and blue, uh, and you only have full resolution for green. Yeah, the effective resolution difference is huge. Yeah. And uh, it's Uh, interesting to note that Sony... uh, obviously recognize this and cares about this uh, with the PlayStation VR because that is an RGB 
OLED, and I'm sure people are killing themselves over designing and making those panels um, because that's not trivial at all. So yeah. that's pretty interesting. And I think that's kind of an indicator that we are able to push higher resolutions now with this sort of uh, S-stripe or RGB subpixel arrangement. Yeah, I think that's Japan display OLED. I could be wrong. Um, and it is only 1080p. But, you know, I was impressed when I heard, you know, these rumors, which I think are pretty credible, that Samsung was going to do it this year, finally. But um, it's important. Um, like you say, it's, it's easier to read text. Uh, text looks more correct anyway. It does less issues. Uh, but especially for VR. And... You know, it's a big difference. It's not the sort of thing that people normally comment on. They just see the the spec resolution and um, don't know the trade-offs that go into that. So I think it's good to kind of help people um, help people be aware of these things. For I think for me it would be a, a vindication because I have mentioned this in every review I've done of OLED devices, and people always say that they don't notice it or it's not an issue. And if that were true, Samsung would definitely not use it. And Apple would not have put so much effort into using it on their devices. Um, there are other aspects that people don't think about either, like the fact that the irregular arrangement for Pentile causes greater color shift for off-angle viewing, uh, which is why the Apple Watch has far better color stability off-angle than uh, other OLED devices do. So, yeah, it's important. There are, there are benefits that people don't even think about um, even if they do know about the fact that a display is pentile. So it's a good thing. I'm hoping the rumor pans out. Yeah, I think I, my memory was that for Apple, the, the red and the blue are actually pretty similar size. I could be wrong. Um, they're close. They're close. But I remember they, they're they always slightly different uh, just due to the the organic materials and the, the lifetime okay. of them. Basically, OLED doesn't age well, especially... Uh, the, the different colors age at different rates. Uh, and I guess it's kind of insoluble, right, for uh, for green? Is I it? mean, it's, it's, I mean, they're organic things and they age. And yeah, the guy who invented them. Also, I was very wrong. You're right. The blue one is the, the larger one. I don't know. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah. This is, it's so, it's so awkward to deal with. Yeah, the blue is a long, like, vertical, or depending on your orientation, is vertical. Then the green is slightly larger than the red. And those are positioned beside it, so you get sort of a square. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just a lifetime thing. These things age. The blue emitters have the lowest efficiency. Um, the green have the highest efficiency. And so they're, they're uh, sized and put accordingly. So. Yeah, for TVs, I know you, you've ranted many times in the past TV, about... TVs is different. <laughs> yeah, so basically you have WOLED. Uh, which is white OLED, which means you have a white subpixel, uh, which is larger, I believe, and that just is more, I guess, uh, efficiency in terms of light output and a lot easier to make at cost and at large panel sizes. Yeah, and then you just uh, it goes through f color filters. Um, right. And obviously, it's the Samsung had their like one OLED TV, and it was a standard sort of like nor normal. The, the same thing they do in mobile, I believe, like, you know, three three emitters. And it didn't work. It was too expensive. And then they haven't made an OLED TV since. And they're, they've been focused on quantum dot LCDs. Uh, 
so far. And LG is the only one who's been successful with this, really. So. Yeah, I mean, they made a huge, huge investments over many years to do that, of course. Whereas Samsung Display has invested in mobile, um, and I guess hey, I didn't even you know, think about the first Samsung OLED TV, but I'm guessing that would be Ixo panel, and. Um, now, you know, actually, maybe we should rant a bit here about Samsung at CES, because uh, QLED? <laughs> no, I don't want to talk about that. It didn't happen. <laughs> it didn't happen. Uh, um, <laughs> oh, my goodness. So Samsung basically has upped their game every year in terms of marketing silliness. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, this year really took the cake. Um you know, there's never been such a thing as an LED TV. Uh, it, it's just LCD. Uh, you use LEDs, but it's an LCD TV, you know, panel. And then to say QLED implying some kind of brand new type of display that's based on Quantum Dot in the backplane is it, just nonsense. Like, it's just, that's just pure marketing. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't want to talk. TV marketing is pretty bad in general. We think we think mobile is bad, but TVs have always been. There's so much craziness there. And you know, it's not to say that QLED, let's just say quantum dot films, whatever. Uh, that, that's really what it is. It's a film layer that's applied um, that helps you uh, increase the color gamut, uh, improve efficiency, and make it possible to to you know ship these HDR TVs on LCD. Uh, with with nice um, nice results, and you know it's it's you know it is impressive tech. Uh, Samsung wasn't the I should say Samsung Display was not the originator of of this technology. There were a few different companies that were that had worked on Quantum Dot, if not more. Uh, Samsung ended up buying um, what was the company's name again? Uh, it was Nanosys, right? Nanosys is still in yeah. Government. It, uh, I thought it was Nanosys. Was it? Maybe they are. Well, anyway. Um, yeah, and there's controversy about this uh, in terms of maybe, you know, quantum dot being toxic. Uh, Apple has avoided quantum dot for that reason. They, they rolled their own solution. Um, they, I don't think people realize how much Apple designs their own displays, how many patents they have on certain technologies, how much they really co-develop a lot of their display technologies. Uh, so, you know, there is a, a valid argument on both sides, I think, for what materials you use and what compromises you make and what kind of cost efficiency trade-offs you make. Um, but I think the thing that's clear is QLED is not a real type of TV. It's Unless you have quantum dot at the backplane level, uh, which may be possible one day, I don't know. Um, it's it's not a valid thing in terms of marketing. I have a feeling that every time we podcast, it's going to devolve into displays, regardless. So, yeah. <laughs> devolve into what all this stupid marketing and stuff that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, so I guess we shouldn't. You know, the LG G6 is going to debut at MWC and. I think, you know, the GS8 is rumored to just be teased. Um, and the reason they're doing that is they don't want you to buy the LG G6, of course. Um, yeah. And that's another topic in terms of what's going on with Samsung Foundry and uh, 
we can talk about that another day. But basically, um, LG is going to launch as well. So I guess we'll see the device detail in full. Um, some of the details, uh, there's a quad DAC, supposedly, uh, again, from the, the V20 last year. Um, also, a display that's more edge-to-edge of minimal bezels. Maybe the um, display will be good this time. That'd be that'd be a good change. Do you want to talk about LG's uh, history of mobile displays? I mean, I just don't understand what they're. I never understood what they were doing when I was at a non tech. Um, every they tried to do wide gamut with P three, and they couldn't even meet it because they were using like I can't even remember. They were only using like an like one phosphor and. Uh, you got, you got, I don't even remember the specifics, but basically they fell short of the gamut, even though they're making P3 displays for Apple that do it perfectly. So they obviously know how to do this. And so the displays aren't calibrated well to their target gamut. And that target gamut is not sRGB, which means it doesn't work well on Android because there's no color management. And... The displays were just always inefficient. They had issues with peak brightness for so long, all because they pushed for 1440p way early on uh, before like this was able to be done feasibly. And I just, I've, I've never understood what they're doing. I feel like that, I feel like on the Android side, Samsung is really the only vendor I'm willing to bet on actually shipping like something really good year over year. Whereas with LG, I'm just like, I don't understand how the company with such good that the fact that they have LG display, which is like the leading manufacturer of displays in the world that they can't do this. They can't ship a a great display on their phone. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. I think LG displays like revenue and profits like dwarf Samsung display. I could be wrong with a degree, but I think it's not that close. Uh, And what's interesting now is Samsung display is, is really growing and they're, uh, if you look at Samsung Electronics financials, uh, they're making a ton of money from components, and a huge part of that is OLED, shipping AMOLED from Samsung Display. So there's a lot more vendors using them. There's Huawei. Um, we're going to see Apple. Um, there's more, I guess, I can comment on that, but it'll be interesting to see that, you know, even though we've had um, OLED displays in mobile for a long time, e- even some of the kind of the aborted attempts with POLED from LG display, uh, the G Flex and G Flex Two. Um, we're gonna see. This kind of feels like the the year of OLED. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of this definitely. boils down to Apple finally making the transition, but it's not like OLED suddenly got good. Um, it's just um, the ecosystem is growing, and you know, Samsung kept the current generation of uh, OLED technology to themselves, um, which. Uh, well, that's not strictly true, but uh, it's, that's a complicated situation. Yeah, it's 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 complicated. Um, so yeah, I guess uh, it's a bit late to recap stuff from CES. Um, we also don't quite know what else is going to be launched at NWC. We can obviously talk about that stuff uh, after it happens. Uh, is there anything from CES that you wanted to talk about? And I don't know if you probably haven't commented public too much. Um, well, I was, I was not at the show this year. Um, and I feel like as a mobile person, CES doesn't have that much to offer anymore. (laughs) 
<laughs> everything really important is at MWC nowadays, to be honest. Yeah, that's true. Um, and I know there's a, a, a really strong impression among people that CES is this really terrible show that's just like this slog and the press hate it. And, you know, a bunch of like, uh, not fantastic devices launched there, not important devices, whatever. And there's just like waves of, well, you know, frankly, there's a lot of garbage. But what I don't think people realize is the real part of the show is you have every tech company in the world all in Las Vegas at once. Like yeah. Everyone. And so there's an enormous number of meetings that are taking place. Um, and there's a lot that you learn. So, uh, for example, you know, found famously you have the TV companies are trying to get Best Buy and other retailers to uh, sell their TVs uh, later that year. So they're making those deals uh, at the show. So, you know, you have people flying from Asia, from Europe, everywhere um, to do business. And, you know, frankly, this is CES. I'm sorry that you couldn't get to go this year, but you learn so much at CES that it's like enough for half a year. Like, um, Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. It's just as a product event, not, uh, Right. too important yeah. but yeah when i went uh the pr- the past two years definitely uh you care a lot more about the the meetings than you do about uh going to keynotes you could say yeah exactly uh and you know frankly we don't have time to, to go to the presentations for the most part i mean i went to a few this year but that's not why you know people are there for business so um yeah unfortunately ces just gets a bad rap uh, for that regard. And, you know, obviously for the press, it's not a lot of fun, of course, um, to have to cover a lot of maybe not interesting things. Um, anyway, um, unless there's anything else you want to talk about, uh, I think I've kind of run out of ideas for right now. I think that's about everything for me as well. Okay. Um, so I think what I should, should do is I should probably explain what tech tech specs is all about um so i'm starting this blog um in an effort to help explain technology uh it there that's a big problem in in terms of uh, how do you arrange content from introductory level to uh more in depth uh how do you kind of bridge that gap so you know unfortunately i think i'm trying I'm starting off with more technical pieces, um, and I'm going to try to do more intro pieces in the future, uh, and try best to explain all this terminology. So I apologize if you know when we were talking about displays, if you're not familiar with you know half these things. Um, one thing I want to do uh, as an experiment uh, is if anybody has any questions, uh, anything in tech, I guess. Uh, <laughs> at least it's not like enterprise or servers or something. Um, you can send an email to techspecsquestions at gmail.com. And I'll try my best to see if I can answer that on the show. Um, so again, that's techspecsquestions at gmail.com, all one word. Um, and I will be doing more uh, introductory writing. Um, I, I can promise you now that there's never going to be any ads on the site. There's never going to be any ads on this podcast. Uh, I do want to try my part, um, at least to 
explain all the things that I've been fortunate enough to be able to learn um, over the past so many years in the industry. Um, so that that is the overarching goal of the site. Um, the podcast will be similar. Um, so I think, yeah, feel free to send any questions about anything. Um, I did write another piece this week, uh, very, very brief, about um, Apple and what it needs to do to go ultra high definition. Uh, and I apologize again that that did not go into details about what those words mean. If you're not familiar, uh, I will try to be. I will try to do that in the future. Uh, I'll probably write a piece about HDR uh, at least at some point. Um, but basically, uh, you know, uh, Mark Gurman reported reported in Bloomberg that uh, Apple is working on a new Apple TV for this year. Um, and it's something that, you know, I've been waiting to see when they would launch a UHD model. Um, they didn't do it last year, of course. Um, they did wait. And so a lot of that is tied to, okay, when is iTunes ready to go UHD? Uh, and so I think it's pretty obvious that Apple's been encoding uh, content for their, for their, you know, databases and whatnot uh, to upgrade to the ultra high definition standard. Uh, and that consists of uh, water color gamut, 4K resolution, uh, and HDR. Uh, so there's different optional components to this and to how you do it. But basically, you know, you already have Netflix, uh, Amazon uh, Video, um, and others that are already, you know, providing video. Uh, you have the new Blu-ray uh, UHD spec, uh, and it's not just 4K resolution. So there's a lot that goes into it, and you know if you if you're shipping a device that can do 4K, it, it's going to be ultra high definition. Um, what do you need to do to enable that? And one big component that I think a lot of people don't realize is that Apple has had uh, HEVC um, decode silicon whatever uh, since I think the A8. Um, yeah, it was uh, there was the famous H two six five FaceTime with the iPhone six that right. was then removed shortly afterward. When uh, I guess around the time things went weird with the licensing, so uh, yeah, that's a whole other topic. But yeah, it's a it's a big topic, and I I, do, I can't do that justice. But um, basically, there's a whole sorts of licensing nightmares around HEVC, which is the High Efficiency Video Codec, which is successor to AVC, uh, which was com you know commonly known as H.264. And basically you get uh, double the efficiency uh, for the same quality or you know boost the quality. So for 4K content, you don't strictly need HEVC uh, encoding, but you know if you're going to do it in a reasonable amount of bandwidth, it makes a huge difference. So, you know, Apple's had some silicon. Uh, we're not sure exactly how it fully developed. Uh, but either way, they haven't had it active um, because of all the licensing problems. Uh, so, you know, they have existing um, systems on a chip that they can use. They don't need to make a new SSC necessarily. Uh, but they do have to enable it. Um, and then part of the other things that have to go into this uh, for HDR is know what HDR standard do they pick and in my opinion I, I would think they they have to go to Dolby Vision 
because it is the highest quality of the HDR specifications. It does require paying Dolby, which is not everyone's favorite thing to do, but um, I, I still suspect they'll do that. Uh, for wide color, they've already shipped P3 displays. Um, they know how to handle that. And then resolution, um, you have to improve uh, the output uh, capabilities of the Apple TV. I think it's HDMI 1.4 still, which is a bit painful. Um, you might want to improve uh, to 10, uh, 10 gigabit uh, Ethernet, maybe. But um, <laughs> On the Apple TV, start with gigabit Internet, for God's sake. Yeah. So, you know, Apple's basically hit a cost or hit a hit a price point with their margin on top of that. Uh, and, you know, the Apple TV is not cheap compared to the Roku and the Amazon uh, devices. But, you know, that's their strategy. They went as low as they could go, uh, given what they want to do. Uh, and so you don't get things like faster Ethernet, which is a shame. But, you know, there's a lot that they can upgrade. And you also need HDCP 2.2. So you need DRM, basically, that uh, you know Netflix and all these other providers require to get you know 4K Netflix uh, UHD content uh, to make everybody happy from the, the content vendors. Um, so those are things that we need to see from Apple. And then you know all that comes together in terms of iTunes finally launching UHD content. Uh, what devices get to have this content? I mean, I guess you know the iPads are already um, capable. The problem you have on mobile is we don't have HDR displays yet. Uh, which for mobile, I think you're going to need um, local tone mapping to enable that. Uh, and I don't know what kind of time frame we're looking at for that, but it's it's much harder to do that in a mobile device. Uh, in a power-efficient manner. Uh, I think that's about it, unless I'm missing anything, Brennan. But... Well, that sounds... That's about right. Um, I would I would add that I would hope uh, they up the bit depth on their displays, too, once we actually start getting uh, wide gamut video content, because I don't want to... I don't want color banding to start being an issue with uh, with media on devices. That'd be pretty sad. Yeah, and that itself is a pretty enormous topic. So uh, maybe for another day we can elaborate a bit and have a, a color monologue or something. Um, yeah. Um, uh, Brandon, anything you want to plug? Uh, anything you want to talk about? Uh, maybe maybe your Twitter handle at least. Yeah, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at uh, NexusCFX, N-E-X-U-S-C-F-X, that's it. Um, don't really have a website or anything of note. Uh, yeah, for me, uh, I have no idea what I'm doing right now, but uh, hopefully I'll be on here again if I can find the time and if uh, if Dan can convince me well enough to come back. <laughs> Sounds like we know the answer. Um yeah, and I'm at Dan Maddie on Twitter, uh, D-A-N-M-A-T-T-E. Um, happy to take questions anytime. Uh, I do try to get back to pretty much anyone I can. Uh, and again, if you have maybe like a longer form question or just anything in general, 
uh, please do send any kind of general tech questions to techspecsquestions at gmail.com. Um, the website is techspecs.blog. And hopefully we can do this podcast on a fairly regular basis and see where it goes. Uh, I'm going to try to post this to both iTunes and Google Play. Um, and please just let me know if you have any feedback as well. Uh, I know the audio is probably not the greatest, uh, but this is the first podcast and we'll be improving that over time. Uh, and with that, uh, until next time, folks, thanks a lot.